0: Chapter Thirteen of Faulkner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Faulkner by Mary Shelley. Chapter Thirteen. From this time their homeward journey was more prosperous. They arrived safely at Lyon and thence proceeded to Basel, to take advantage again of river navigation, the motion of a carriage being so inimical to the invalid. They proceeded down the Rhine to Rotterdam, and crossing the sea returned at last to England, after an absence of four years. This journey, though at first begun in terror and danger, grew less hazardous at each mile they traversed towards the north, and while going down the rhine Faulkner and his adopted daughter spent several tranquil and happy hours comparing the scenery they saw to other and distant landscapes and recalling incidents that had occurred many years ago Faulkner exerted himself for elizabeth's sake she had suffered so much And he had inflicted so much anguish upon her, while endeavouring to free himself from the burden of life, that he felt remorse at having thus trifled with the deepest emotions of her heart, and anxious to recall the more pleasurable sensations adapted to her age. The listless, yet pleasing feelings attendant on convalescence influenced his mind also, and he enjoyed a peace to which he had long been a stranger. Elizabeth, it is true, had another source of reverie besides that ministered to her by her father. She often thought of Neville, and though he was sad, the remembrance of him was full of pleasure. He had been so kind, so sympathizing, so helpful. Besides, there was a poetry in his very gloom that added a charm to every thought spent upon him. She did not only recall his conversation, but conjectured the causes of his sorrow, and felt deeply interested by the mystery that hung about him. So young and so unhappy, and he had been long so. He was more miserable when they saw him roving wildly among the Alsatian hills. What could it mean? She strove to recollect what Miss Jervis mentioned at that time. She remembered only that he had no mother, and that his father was severe and unkind. Yet why, when nature is so full of joyousness, when, at the summer season, vegetation basks in beauty and delight, and the very clouds seem to enjoy their aerial abode in upper sky, why should misery find a home in the mind of man, a misery which the balmy winds will not lull, nor the verdant landscape and its winding river dissipate. She thought thus, as she saw Falconer reclining apart, a cloud gathered on his brow, his piercing eyes fixed in vacancy, as if it beheld there a heart-moving tragedy. But she was accustomed to his melancholy. She had ever known him as a man of sorrows, He had lived long before she knew him, and the bygone years were filled by events pregnant with wretchedness, nay, if he spoke truth, with guilt. But Neville, the young, the innocent, who had been struck in boyhood through no fault of his own, nor any act in which he bore a part, was there no remedy for him, and would not friendship and kindness and the elastic spirit of youth suffice to cure his wound She remembered that he declared that he had an aim in view, in which he resolved to succeed, and succeeding he should be happy. A noble aim doubtless, for his soft eyes lighted joyously up, and his face expressed a glad pride when he prognosticated ultimate triumph. Her heart went with him in his efforts she prayed earnestly for his success and was as sure as he that heaven would favour an object which she felt certain was generous and pure a sigh a half-grown from Faulkner, called her to his side while she meditated on these things both suffer she thought would that some link united them so that both might find relief in the accomplishment of the same resolves little did she think of the real link that existed mysterious yet adamantine that to pray for the success of one was to solicit destruction for the other a dark veil was before her eyes totally impervious nor did she know that the withdrawing it as was soon to be would deliver her over to conflicting duties sad struggles of feeling and stain her life with the dark hues that now, missing her, blotted the existence of the two upon earth for whom she was most interested. They arrived in London. Faulkner's fever was gone, but his wound was rankling, painful, and even dangerous. The bullet had grazed the bone, and this, at first neglected, and afterward improperly treated, now betrayed symptoms of exfoliation." His sufferings were great. He bore them patiently. He looked on them as an atonement. He had gone out in his remorse to die. He was yet to live, broken and destroyed. And if suffered to live, was it not for Elizabeth's sake? And having bound her fate to his, what right had he to die? The air of London being injurious, and yet it being necessary to continue in the vicinity of the most celebrated surgeons, they took a pleasant villa on Wimbledon Common, situated in the midst of a garden, and presenting to the eye that mixture of neatness, seclusion, and comfort, that renders some of our smaller English country-houses so delightful. Elizabeth, despite her wanderings, had a true feminine love of home— she busied herself in adding elegance to their dwelling by a thousand little arts which seem nothing and are everything in giving grace and cheerfulness to an abode their life became tranquil and a confidence and friendship existed between them the source of a thousand pleasant conversations and happy hours one subject, it is true, was forbidden. The name of Neville was never mentioned. Perhaps, on that very account, it assumed more power over Elizabeth's imagination. A casual intercourse with one, however interesting, might have faded into the common light of day, had not the silence enjoined kept him in that indistinct, mysterious darkness so favourable to the processes of the imagination on every other subject the so-called father and daughter talked with open heart and falkner was totally unaware of a secret growth of unspoken interest which had taken root in separation and secrecy elizabeth accustomed to fear death for one dearest to her and to contemplate its near approaches so often had something holy and solemn needed into the very elements of her mind that gave sublimity to her thoughts resignation to her disposition and a stirring inquiring spirit to her conversation which, separated as they were from the busy and trivial duties of life, took from the monotony and stillness of their existence, by bringing thoughts beyond the world to people the commonplace of each day's routine. Faulkner had not much of this, but he had a spirit of observation, a ready memory, and a liveliness of expression and description, which corrected her wilder flights, And gave the interest of flesh and blood to her fairy dreams. When they read of the heroes of old, or the creations of the poets, she dwelt on the moral to be deduced, the theories of life and death, religion and virtue therein displayed, while he compared them to his own experience, criticized their truth, and gave pictures of real human nature, either contrasting with or resembling those presented on the written page. Their lives thus spent would have been equable and pleasant, but for the sufferings of Faulkner. And as those diminished, another evil arose, in his eyes, of far more awful magnitude. They had resided at Wimbledon about a year, when Elizabeth fell ill. Her medical advisers explained her malady as the effect of the extreme nervous excitement she had gone through during the last years, which born with a patience and fortitude almost superhuman had meanwhile undermined her physical strength this was a mortal blow to Faulkner. while with self-absorbed and he now felt criminal pertinacity he had sought death he had forgotten the results such acts of his might have on one so dear and innocent he had thought that when she lost him elizabeth would feel a transitory sorrow while new scenes another family and the absence of his griefs would soon bring comfort but he lived and the consequences of his resolve to die fell upon her she was his victim there was something maddening in the thought he looked at her dear face grown so pale viewed her wasting form watched her loss of appetite and nervous tremors with an impatient agony that irritated his wound and brought back malady on himself all that the physicians could order for elizabeth was change of air added to an intimation that an entirely new scene and a short separation from her father would be of the utmost benefit where could she go It was not now that she drooped and trembled at every sound that he could restore her to her father's family. No time ought to be lost, he was told, and the word consumption mentioned. The deaths of her parents gave a sting to that word, which filled him with terror. Something must be done immediately. What he knew not and he gazed on his darling, whom he felt that by his own act he had destroyed, with an ardour to save that he felt was impotent, and he writhed beneath the thought. One morning, while Faulkner was brooding over these miserable ideas, and Elizabeth was vainly trying to assume a look of cheerfulness and health, which her languid step and pale cheek belied, a carriage entered their quiet grounds, and a visitor was announced. It was Lady Cecil. Elizabeth had nearly forgotten, nor ever expected to see her again. But that lady, whose mind was at ease at the period of their acquaintance, and who had been charmed by the beauty and virtues of the devoted daughter, had never ceased to determine at some time to seek her, and renew their acquaintance she indeed never expected to see Faulkner again and she often wondered what would be his daughter's fate when he died she and her family had remained abroad till the present spring when being in london she by miss jervis's assistance learned that he still lived and that they were both at wimbledon lady cecil was a welcome visitor wherever she went for there was an atmosphere of cheerful and kindly warmth around her that never failed to communicate pleasure. Falconer, who had not seen her at Leghorn, and had scarcely heard her name mentioned, was one at once, and when she spoke with ardent praise of Elizabeth, and looked upon her altered appearance with undisguised distress, his heart warmed towards her, and he was ready to ask her assistance in his dilemma. That was offered, however, before it was asked. She heard that change of air was recommended. She guessed that too great anxiety for her father had produced her illness. She felt sure that her own pleasant residence and cheerful family was the best remedy that could be administered. "'I will not be denied,' she said, after having made her invitation, that both father and daughter should pay her a visit.' "'You must come to me. "'Lord Cecil has gone to Ireland for two months "'to look after his estate there, "'and our little Julius being weakly "'I could not accompany him. "'I have taken a house near Hastings. "'The air is salubrious, the place beautiful. "'I lead a domestic quiet life, "'and I am sure Miss Faulkner will soon be well with me.' "'As her invitation was urged with warmth and sincerity, "'Faulkner did not hesitate to accept it to a certain degree he modified it by begging that elizabeth should accompany lady cecil in the first place alone as the visit was to be for two months he promised after the first was elapsed to join them he alleged various reasons for this arrangement his real one being that he had gathered from the physicians that they considered a short separation from him as essential to the invalid's recovery she acceded for she was anxious to get well, and hoped that the change would restore her. Everything was therefore soon agreed upon, and two days afterward the two ladies were on their road to Hastings, where Lady Cecil's family already was, she having come to town with her husband only, who by this time had set out on his Irish tour. "'I feel convinced that three days of my nursing will make you quite well,' said Lady Cecil, as they were together in her travelling carriage. "'I wish you to look as you did in Italy. One so young, and naturally so healthy, will soon recover strength. You overtaxed yourself, and your energetic mind is too strong for your body. But repose and my care will restore you.' I am sure we shall be very happy. My children are dear little angels, and will entertain you when you like, and never be in your way. I shall be your head nurse, and Miss Jervis, dear odd soul, will act under my orders. The situation of my house is enchanting, and to add to our family circle, I expect my brother Gerard, whom I am sure you will like. Did I ever mention him to you?' Perhaps not, but you must like Gerard, and you will delight him. He is serious, nay, to say the truth, sad, but it is a sadness a thousand times more interesting than the gaiety of commonplace worldly men. It is a seriousness full of noble thoughts and affectionate feelings. I never knew, I never dreamed, that there was a creature resembling, or to be compared to him in the world, till I saw you, you have the same freedom from worldliness the same noble and elevated ideas feeling for others and thinking not of the petty circle of ideas that encompasses and presses down every other mind so that they cannot see or feel beyond their lilliputian selves in one thing you do not resemble gerard you though quiet are cheerful while he naturally more vivacious is melancholy You look an inquiry, but I cannot tell you the cause of my brother's unhappiness, for his friendship for me, which I highly prize, depends upon my keeping sacredly the promise I have given never to make his sorrows a topic of conversation. All I can say is that they result from a sensibility and a delicate pride which is overstrained, yet which makes me love him ten thousand times more dearly, He is better now than he used to be, and I hope that time and reason will altogether dissipate the vain regrets that embitter his life. Some new, some strong feeling may one day spring up and scatter the clouds. I pray for this, for though I love him tenderly, and sympathize in his grief, yet I think it excessive and deplorable, and, alas, never to be remedied, though it may be forgotten." Elizabeth listened with some surprise to hear of another so highly praised and yet unhappy, while in her heart she thought, Though this sound like one to be compared to Neville, yet, when I see him, how I shall scorn the very thought of finding another as high-minded, kind, and interesting as he. She gave no utterance, however, to this reflection, and merely asked, Is your brother older than you? No, younger, he is only two-and-twenty, but passion and grief, endured almost since infancy, prevented him when a child from being childish, and now he has all that is beautiful in youth, with none of its follies. Pardon my enthusiasm, but you will grow enthusiastic also when you see Gerard. I doubt that, thought Elizabeth. My enthusiasm is spent, and I should hate myself if I could think of another as of Neville.' This latent thought made the excessive praises which Lady Cecil bestowed on her brother sound almost distastefully. Her thoughts flew back to Marseilles, to his sedulous attentions, their parting interview, and fixed at last upon the strange emotion Falconer had displayed when seeing him, and his desire that his name even should not be mentioned. Again she wondered what this meant, and her thoughts became abstracted, Lady Cecil conjectured that she was tired, and permitted her to indulge in her silent reveries. End of chapter 13